Welcome back to Speaking for Kids, the podcast by Michigan's Children, where we explore crucial conversations with people making public policy impacting kids and families in Michigan, and the voices of the people impacted by them. I'm your host, Matt Gillard, the president and CEO of Michigan's Children. It's great to be back online with our newest podcast on a topic that's been gaining huge attention and traction from the public, politicians, and policy advocates. The topic is childcare, and specifically the need to transform Michigan's childcare system. This is such an important issue to be talking about, especially now that we have an unprecedented opportunity to make some real change and reforms to our state's moribund system of care. With new federal relief dollars, actually $1.4 billion with a B coming to Michigan, and state lawmakers in the Whitmer administration wrangling over how to best use these dollars, the time is now for some frank talk and action. At Michigan's Children, we've been working for big changes in the childcare system for years because we know childcare is an essential service, which sadly is inaccessible for many working families and untenable as a business model. For many care providers, wages are far too low while stress is high. We know families need quality, affordable care so they can go back to work. And we know thousands of parents have had to drop out of the workforce because of the lack of care, and quality care in particular. Some things we've been advocating for, investing public dollars to help more families become eligible for childcare subsidies and to improve provider payments. We know 50% of families who qualify for a childcare subsidy can't claim it because of a shortage in slots currently. Incentivizing the system with higher provider reimbursement rates based on enrollment, not attendance, and helping parents by covering the cost of co-pays to improve affordability. To bring this issue into focus, we've invited two very special people to join us who both have great insight and working experience into how, into how integral childcare systems are in a community and how to deliver programs that best support kids and families. With us today are my good friend Denise Smith, director with the Detroit-wide Hope Starts Here Early Learning Framework, and Sherry Williams, the owner-operator of Agape Love Child Care Center, a high-quality home-based program for children in Detroit. Denise Smith was a home-based provider and Head Start administrator who has been at the forefront of helping to design and build Michigan's child care system. She's gone on to lead neighborhood and citywide coalitions, including the renowned early learning complex known as Educare in Flint and in Detroit, Hope Starts Here. Denise is a longtime champion for equitable, accessible, high-quality early education for all children. Sherry Williams is a licensed in-home family daycare provider for children, namely infants and preschoolers. Her staff are certified in early childhood education, and Sherry's been a director for over 20 years with a master's degree in curriculum and instruction and a minor in early childhood education. Her program uses a high-scope curriculum, has a strong focus on literacy and the arts, and is designed around the concepts of offering a nurturing, loving, safe, and healthy environment for students. Thank you, Denise and Sherry, for being here today. Thank you for having us, Thank man. Thank you for having me. <laughs> All right, Sherry, we'll start with you. Starting off uh, with your perspective as a child care provider and an employer, tell us what are your biggest challenges and struggles today? Where do I start? No, I'm just <laughs> um, Well, number one is the obvious financial. Um not having the finances because of a lack of children, um, because of the impact of COVID, um, having to be closed almost a year caused me to kind of go in debt in some areas. Thankfully, I have a husband who was helping to sustain me and I was in my home uh, child care. But that was one of the main things um, was the financial piece. It still is. Um, 
But I thank God for every day. We're making it. We're keeping our doors open. Um, That's one of the main things. The second thing is I would love to have an additional staff. However, I can't afford to pay that staff at the moment. So um, it leaves me with either, um, I'm still within ratio, but it would just be a better help, especially um, with everything that's going on to be able to not only hire a staff, pay the staff, but pay them what they're worth. Because the pay that some staff were getting, they're like, I can get this at McDonald's. I can get more than this at McDonald's. You know, I can get $12, $15 at McDonald's. And so now you're like, wow, I really can't afford to pay this person, even if they could come on. Um, so those are some of the challenges as well as um, um, some of the parents can't afford it or um, they may have different financial things. But uh, um, in the midst of that, I did partner with a program, Detroit Source, that kind of helped me in that area. However, there are still some families that have not returned to care and they're still cautious about sending their children, which greatly impacts um, me as well. So Sherry, I'm going to ask you also to expound upon uh, an area that I know you shared with me before and the Mm -hmm. rounds of grants that came out before um, you you stated about your being able to take advantage of that opportunity or actually not being able to. Can you talk a little bit about that? Okay, so that... um, That was very unfortunate because at the time, I just opened my childcare facility in December. So basically January of 2020. Okay. And then two and a half months later, COVID happened. I only had two children. So now the two children that I have, they're home. I'm closed. I have my one child. But because even when I opened back up, the parents weren't ready to open. So I only had my child. And when I got ready to apply for the September 8th, that final round six, um, I was not able to get the funds because they said I could not count my child. And I'm like, well, I can't force the parents to bring their kids. If one, they're working from home and they're saying I'm keeping my child home and or or another, they're saying I'm afraid to bring my child back right now. So it put me in a position of absolutely getting nothing for the um, September round, which was the big chunk of money that everybody received. So I started behind because, you know, when you first start a business anyway, you're kind of, you know, you're kind of in a red starting and you won't really see your profits for a year or two. But now with the push of this, it was like I'm way even further back, you know, and honestly, the only way that I was able to continue to move forward is with the support of my husband. If I didn't have that, I would have had to go back to corporate America and I would have had to do something different. And I know a lot of people who are actually in that boat or have said, I really can't afford it. And we're hanging in there. We're trying. But um, that was one of the things that really impacted me as well. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's an unfortunate reality that we hear from providers, you know, around the state. Um, and it's really kind of twofold. Like you said, I mean, from the, the business owner like yourself, it's a very difficult mm-hmm. industry and the business model is broken and it's mm-hmm. and it's very uh, tenuous at best mm-hmm. as a business model to, to maintain or, or realize any sort of profit uh, from this. But then from the employee side as well, we're hearing stories from across the state where employees of child care providers are leaving for retail jobs, for fast food jobs, mm-hmm. and others because they're paying more 
uh, because that's how much undervalued we as a society and as a state, you know, have undervalued this industry uh, and these professionals. So, um, uh, Denise, I'm glad you mentioned the, the stabilization grants as well, specifically because I mentioned in the intro this $1.4 billion um, that's coming to Michigan or has come to Michigan as a result of the COVID relief bills passed in Congress. About half of that, actually a little more than half of that, is in stabilization funds that are grants meant to be spent on grants going directly to providers to support them through the challenges that Sherry's talking about. So it's imperative that our elected officials and leaders um, design that grant program that, that truly does help the providers not only sustain themselves through the challenges that they are now, but provide them an opportunity to come out of the pandemic in a better position and to grow their businesses uh, and support their employees uh, in a stronger way. That's what we need to do to build a, a, a truly a better uh, child care system. So, Sherry, maybe we can talk a little bit about rates. So you mentioned, you know, in, initially in, in your challenges, um, the struggle to pay employees. Um, you know, one of the areas Michigan's focused on probably more so than rates in the recent past has been on eligibility and trying to get more families eligible for the subsidy program. And I understand that. And I think that's a laudable goal. But one of our concerns at Michigan's Children is that we're doing that at the expense of increasing provider reimbursement rates. How much would, would, would increasing provider reimbursement rates significantly help you to, to afford more staff or to potentially look at hiring more employees? Um, depending on how much it may be, um, but I don't know exactly what it would look like. It almost seems like you need a separate something for that staff in addition to, you know what I'm saying? What you would be paying a child, this pocket of monies will help give them what they deserve to have quality staff, not just, you know, to keep quality staff. They want some more money, you know, so. Sure. Yeah, I think that's such an insightful perspective. Um, it's some of the things that as advocates, we continuously talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that the rounds of grants have been uh, traditionally supporting the program. But how do we ever build capacity or build a pool of eligible employees or staff that are qualified, to your point, um, if we don't start to address wage um, and benefits that go directly to those uh, those educators, those teachers, and, and a support staff that are necessary to run your business. So we do uh, believe that there needs to be some idea ideation around how we actually get money into the hands of those educators, increase their base wage, while also looking at the supports to the programs. I think, you know, obviously you stated a number of times, Matt, um, that the you know financial perspective from a financial perspective, the child care businesses um, haven't been stable throughout this pandemic, but also even a long time prior to that, right? Mm -hmm. um, because of the uh, lack of investment at, at the appropriate levels. During those early months of, of the pandemic, we saw exactly what, what Sherry has talked to, um, where programs weren't able to, to operate or they open to support essential workers and we're operating at 50% capacity. Um, we definitely know that with this infusion of federal relief dollars, that we can support a higher percentage of childcare providers who are now back in business. 
However, the enrollments in the higher costs related to running during this period of time are still things that we have to address because they're in survival mode nonetheless. And how we do that, how we formulate those grants that come out this round, it has to be with a much better attention to equity um, as opposed to the ways we've done it before and to ensure that those children um, who are mostly at risk, but also those programs who are at risk are being supported in a much more thoughtful way. Yes, absolutely. No, I, I you know, obviously I share that same sentiment. And I mean, th that's part of the frustration, frankly, I think on the advocate side is, is, you know, we're seeing in Washington and from Washington, a broken, you know, Washington, which which everyone knows and sees the the ineptitude almost on a daily basis from Washington. But we're seeing bipartisan strong support for child care from our federal government. We were even seeing it before the pandemic, but throughout the pandemic in any of these relief bills, we always saw child care as a priority and as a focus. We're not, unfortunately, seeing that same level of commitment or support at the state level. Uh, you know, there's struggles, obviously, to get the dollars even out the door, not just related to child care with this this fight that we have going, it seemed like forever going between the legislature and the governor. But even beyond that, we do not see the, the level of prioritization or understanding from our state legislature uh, as we've seen from Congress in the last couple of years. And this is a real opportunity for, for our state leaders to step up, take advantage of this federal dollars, and you know kick in some state funds as well to truly transform this system uh, into what's needed. And, and you know we're watching this happen in other states as they're making decisions on how to spend these federal dollars. And yet in Michigan, we seem to be stuck in neutral or even moving backwards in some ways. Uh, agreed, 100%. I, I think that we really must, our legislature and our governor, need to look at this as a down payment on the system that we need. Um, we know that it's three years, but in three years, we can do an awful lot for not only the children who are being impacted right now, but to transform our system, Matt. Um, and we have to start looking at it in that way, uh, making sure that we can get better outcomes for as many as we can during this time and document the success uh, with evidence that proves that this is the way that we need to operate this early childhood system. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So Sherry, you've heard Denise and I talk about this, and I know we've been in meetings before and you've been in meetings before where these types of things have been talked about. What other ideas do you have specifically that, um, you know, the state could look at or that, that would help you to be able to grow your business or maybe help others like you um, who may be thinking of starting a, a child care provider business? Um, to make it easier? What, what, what could the state do to make this easier, both for you to grow? So, I mean, ultimately, what we're trying to do is provide more high-quality child care opportunities for families. That's what you're doing in Detroit. How can we get more Sherry's out there? Um, I would say one of the things is definitely more partnerships. Um, I And the reason I know about the partnership, because I worked with a partnership before, and I've seen the impact on the quality of care, on the lives of not only just the children, 
the staff, the whole community, because you were now hiring people and then you were educating these staff and you seeing people go back to school and get CDAs and everything was moving together. It was as a whole and growth was basically just overfilling into every area. Um, so more of those right now in Detroit, um, I only know of two. It could be more, but the only two I know of is um, one of them is for the West side and I'm on the East side. And when I called them, they were like, oh, we're not in your area code. And then the one that is within my area code, they don't have any slots. So it's like there are so many more. Um, there are so many more childcare owners who would greatly benefit from that because in turn, you also get training too to improve your quality where you are. You get. I mean, the whole community just changes. And I've seen it time and time again. Um, more of those things. I love the Detroit Source program as well, how they came up, came up aside with the um, with the uh, scholarships because it, it really helped my families. Um, so it, different opportunities like that, different things where they can come alongside, partner, um, help out with whether it's funding, whether it's uh, professional development, whatever it is. And also I would say for, because right before COVID happened, I was getting ready to open a childcare center. Um, thankfully I started in my home first because the building was not done. So what ended up happening was, um, I said, you know what, I'm just going to start in the home. So what I did was I opened, I, um, I started, okay. I, I started in the upstairs of my home, my living room and dining room. I turned it into a daycare and I was like, okay, this is only temporary. This is how I got my husband to agree because it's temporary. Right. And, um, and so the building was not done yet. They had a lot of work to do. Well, two, three months later, COVID happened. And I said, I'm so glad because I know I probably would have lost that building. Um, I wouldn't have had the kids because the kids would have been gone. Probably would have lost the staff. And then you have somebody who, is just starting that's already feel defeated, you know, and you have a lot of people that are very passionate about it, but the lack of finances will cause them to return back and not move forward and opening these high quality, good facilities that our children can benefit from as well as our parents and our community. So and having um, talked with Sherry a, a number of times now, I know that when she's talking about partnerships, she's specifically referring to the early Head Start Child Care Partnership grants mm -hmm. um, that also provide all the things that she talked about. But I think what's what's important to understand and communicate to our audience is that these partnerships actually allow for a blending and a layering of funds. So there's an early head start slot and there's also the subsidy that that program that child may be carrying with him or her that can be used together to increase not only uh, financial stability for that program, but capacity and all the ways that Sherry talked about the professional development that the, the grantee is then providing to these community based organizations and more. Um, so I do think that we can look at, you know, solutions similar to this as we talk about staff provider networks um, that will wrap their arms around these, these home-based programs, these community-based programs, and provide similar supports that allow for them to increase their capacity. 
Yeah, no, that's great to hear. And and you're right, Denise. I think that, you know, some of those things are underway, but they're like, like before, like others, this is the opportunity for us to look at what's working and to expand those. Um, one other thing that, and I'm glad you mentioned kind of the capital and the facility side, Sherry, you know, one other thing that's that's on the table right now in Washington and not getting a lot of attention, we're talking about, you know, where we were in the in the intro here and, and primarily about the funding that's already passed from the rescue plan related to child care. But in the American Jobs Plan, uh, President Biden's infrastructure proposal, there is significant money included in that for startup costs, facility costs and capital costs for child care facilities as well. Um, you know, which isn't getting a lot of attention with everything else that's included in that bill. But that's another indication of how this is a priority and a focus of our, our national leaders in Washington um, and something that would be, you know, I think go a long ways towards towards helping replicate what Sherry's trying to do and getting others uh, to engage in the industry. Because we do hear that, um, you know, from providers who are either looking to expand or from perspective providers who want to get into the business that, you know, start up and facility costs and, and these things are expensive. And when you're looking at a, a business model that is far from lucrative to begin with, uh, you know, borrowing significant amounts of money to start your business is not a, not a viable option as you can understand, or as people can understand. So um, like I said, there is potential opportunity even for that specifically coming from the feds as well. And one other thing I'll note is I know, you know, Sherry's experience is, is talking about in Detroit, but we hear the same issues or many of the same issues from providers around the state. Yeah. Um, so Denise, maybe you can uh, expound a little bit, you know, both you and I have been a part of the, or are a part of the Think Babies um, initiative here uh, focused on uh, policy opportunities and advocacy around infants and toddlers specifically. But as part of that, we've done a lot of outreach to providers around the state. Uh, maybe you can touch a little bit on on some of the things we've heard from providers around the challenges that they're facing. Sure. Uh, in our outreach, which was really widespread throughout the state of Michigan, as, as Matt um, referenced, and you know, in, in my previous work life uh, around Great Start Equality, I also personally got to visit programs throughout the state of Michigan in supporting um, Great Start Equality and the development of the resource centers. So saw firsthand the similarities that there are across programs, across communities, whether rural or urban. Um, and so we heard uh, a lot of similarities from parents and providers themselves during the outreach and enlisting others to join us in pushing forth uh, very intentional strategies for infant and toddlers, uh, where access to care is huge, uh, especially when you go further up north and you're looking at, at our tribal communities, um, similar to rural communities, there, there are deserts that exist and they exist also in our urban areas. Uh, we know that the integration of healthcare and the needs that the children who are young also need, as well as this early childhood education, are also being limited because of disparity, because of just 
geographical um, depth and how we can't access. Uh, we heard from, from programs about professional development and training and pathways that ensure that not only do they get to a higher or livable wage, but they're also being able to get access to professional development that is meaningful and purposeful to what it is that they are trying to achieve. What we, as think babies, I mean, specifically our, you know, our policy priorities are, are making sure that no child, regardless of their zip code um, or any of their other um, identifiers, whether that's income or race, are actually discouraged or not given the equal opportunities to become their very best selves. Um, we also are looking at this statewide cross-sector infant toddler workforce strategy. Again, can we make sure that everyone who's impacting that child's life and development from doulas to our educators and teachers in the classroom are being compensated in a way that's gonna not only keep them in the field, but attract them there in the first place and address some of these concerns that Sherry shared around uh, actually not having the staff, not being able to afford them. And how do we expand those seats again in those places where there are deserts, where there are children who have high need and can't access the kinds of supports and services they need. Um, and certainly from parents, you know, we heard that they weren't always being given the kind of respectful uh, care and services that they should receive. Uh, and so as we think about what is a, the, um, the intentional training that happens around uh, cultural bias, um, and making sure that those don't exist. It's a real important thing to think about when you're hearing from parents how they choose not to attend certain programs or become apathetic because they're not being respected when they are trying to receive services for themselves or their children. Yes, thank you, Denise, for sharing that. No, I think that was a great summation of a lot of what we learned. And, and like you heard from Denise, I mean, these issues are are unfortunately consistent throughout many areas of our state um, and really put Michigan at a competitive disadvantage. When you look at, uh, and, and, and the result, one of the, maybe a positive result of that, it's hard to say that, but we have seen a lot more engagement from the business community around childcare from the advocacy side, at least, as they recognize the challenges um, that they're facing in retaining and attracting employees uh, because of the lack of affordable quality child care in their communities. And so, you know, that adds to some of the political momentum around this issue. We have not seen it, uh, you know, full scale result in, in a, a big tidal wave of, of movement here in Michigan yet. Uh, but it is leading to a lot more movement nationally. And, and you know, child care is an issue nationally. But unfortunately, in Michigan, we seem to be falling farther behind um, our other, a lot of other states in how they're taking advantage of this federal opportunity and moving forward, especially around their subsidized system. So let's, Denise, let's talk a little bit more about equity, um, if you can, if we can, and really boil down to, you know, what we view, what we think maybe the focus should be from the state legislature and the governor's office when they talk about this opportunity in front of them with these federal dollars to truly 
laser focus in on addressing equity within the system because I got to, I mean, I've, from a, from my perspective, the childcare system is, you know, the poster child perhaps for inequities mm -hmm. in our society mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And so how can we use this opportunity to really address these equity issues? I think there's, you know, one very intentional address we can make, uh, even in how the the grants will be distributed, their formula for distribution. We know in this last round that Sherry referenced earlier, uh, we looked at star bonuses um, and things that were really relative to the actual uh, attendance as opposed to enrollment, right? So uh, we know that a lot of the programs weren't able to operate at capacity, so the children just were not there. Uh, one of the ways, there are several, um, but I think if we were to shift how we actually formula the grants to one that has an equity lens and, and be specific to how you apply equity bonuses um, so that programs who are serving a percent of children who are receiving subsidy get X. Uh, programs who have a percentage of children with special needs are, are given a bonus. Uh, that there's enrollment by ages of children with higher compensation for infants and toddlers. Um, in those areas where we know there are deserts. There are all kinds of, of factors that we can utilize to give bonuses. In addition to recognizing the hazard that these early educators have put upon themselves and their families by operating during COVID. Um, so applying a greater equity lens to how we even formula the distribution of grants is one primary place that we can begin to look at uh, how we redistribute. And when we look on the system side, so that's stabilization side, right? When we look on the system development side, I think there is certainly an opportunity for us to create a pathways to education that ensure that we're giving uh, opportunity to those men, those other women of color to be able to elevate to positions of leadership within our early childhood programming that we don't currently have. So is it making sure that there are career tracks, there are supports uh, similar to the community colleges uh, now offering free tuition and others that allow for these folks to move up? Is badging a, an element that we could infuse into this system shift where a program or an educator who hasn't the capital to go back and get a degree, but has experience um, and has taken uh, her classes and training could have that not only acknowledged, but awarded in a badging system that then allows for him or her to use towards a specific degree or measure of improving, increasing towards degree and uh, credentialing uh, that then gives her not only that acknowledgement, but allows for her to move to a higher rung in the ladder of, of development around who she or he is in the system of education and care. So I think there are, there are many things that we could do in this immediate stabilization pot of funds, but there are also how we craft the system uh, going forward to ensure that it becomes much more equitable uh, because we know for sure that children learn better from people who look like them and the early childhood space 
typically does not have a lot of males in it. So how can we ensure that by gender and by race, we are much more representative of the children who are in care? That's great. No, I, I wholeheartedly agree with all of those suggestions. And and I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I'm going to assume if you're listening to our podcast today that you probably care about kids in Michigan as well and their families. And if you do and you want to advocate on any of these issues, we would love it if you would reach out to your state elected officials, primarily at this point, the governor's office, state legislators, and let them know that this needs to be a priority and that they need to take advantage of this opportunity that's being handed to them with this, this influx of federal dollars to truly make some of these changes that will transform our childcare system here in Michigan uh, to one that we want it to be and to be a much more equitable system for all families and all kids throughout our state. Well, that concludes our time on Speaking for Kids today. I wanna thank Sherry and Denise for this great conversation. Uh, and you've been listening to Speaking for Kids with me, Matt Giller, the President and CEO of Michigan's Children, and our special guest, Denise Smith from Hope Starts Here in Detroit, and Sherry Williams from Agape Love Child Care Center in Detroit. Thank you all for being here and listening in, and join us next month for another installment of Speaking for Kids, where we explore crucial conversations with people making public policy and the voices of the people impacted by those decisions. Our goal continues to be to help you strengthen your voice to speak up for the changes we need to improve the lives of Michigan's kids and families. Look for us where you find your podcasts and on YouTube and check out our policy priorities or what we call our policy playbook at michiganschildren.org. You can find other information about these child care issues at michiganschildren.org as well. And also don't miss hearing from us in between podcasts. You can sign up for our e-bulletin and also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you. Goodbye.